Praise God for that. Take out your copy of God's Word, if you would, and turn with me to 1 Samuel 30. Um, Preaching through the life of David is a little bit like one of those TV shows where every time it comes on, they have to recap everything that's happened so far. You can't just pick up in the middle of a story and, and know what's going on. And especially because I only preach when Pastor Walton's away in the evenings, I have to give these recaps. But, you know, David's life has more drama to it than any TV show you'll ever see. You know, through chapter 26, And I want you to remember chapter 26. It's really a significant number in the life of David. But through chapter 26, David's faith was pretty steadfast. He was pretty faithful. And that's not in the midst of ease. He had a difficult life. Saul's been hunting him for quite a while. But David remained steadfast. He knew that God had promised him the kingdom, and so really he understood he was effectively invincible until God's promise was fulfilled. And so through about chapter 26, David was pretty steadfast in his faith. But all of a sudden you got to chapter 27, and David is worrying. And he says, you know what? If I stay here in Israel, Saul's going to kill me. And he gives way, his faith gives way to worry, which gave way to an overactive imagination. I don't know if any of you have ever experienced that before, but you begin to worry about all the worst case scenarios that could happen. And it gave way to fear. And so David then hatched a plan to save his hide. And of all things, that plan involved fleeing to the Philistine city of Gath. Now, if you remember uh, Gath, that's where Goliath was from. There were a lot of angry widows in Gath. But that's where David fled. If you're thinking, that sounds like he's going out of the frying pan into the fire, you're, you're exactly right. And, and that's a pattern in David's life. When faith fails, foolishness follows. He often makes foolish decisions when his faith falters. Once he got to Philistia, he became beholden to one of the Philistine lords, a man named Achish. And to fit in among the wicked, David adopted a life of deceit as he secretly made war on Israel's enemies. Now, we saw a couple of chapters ago, Achish was about to go out to battle, and he wanted David at his side. Now, David has nothing to worry about. He's a phenomenal warrior. But the problem is, Achish is going to war against the Israelites, If David goes to war, he's going to be viewed as a traitor against Israel. But if he refuses to fight, Achish may kill him for being disloyal. You know, if we want to summarize the last few chapters, chapters 27 to 30 of David's life, we could simply say sin has consequences. That's what we see in David's life. Sin has consequences. Last time, we saw that God saved David from the dilemma because the Philistine lords didn't trust David, and they said, no, we're not letting him go fight. He'll he'll attack us. He'll attack us from behind if he goes to war. And so David is finally home free. He and his 600 men have been spared. I don't know that they realize how much God spared them from, but now they've just got to make the 60-mile journey back to base camp at Ziklag, where all should be well. But as we're going to see, things are going to go from bad to much, much worse. So 1 Samuel chapter 30. 
Now, when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and had burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burnt with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives had also been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Besor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and 400 men, 200 men stayed behind who were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David, and they gave him bread, and he ate. They gave him water to drink, and they gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, to whom do you belong, and where are you from? He said, I'm a man, young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negev of the Cherethites, and against that which belongs to Judah, and against the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said, will you take me down to this band? And he said, swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I'll take you down to this band. And when he had taken them down, behold, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until evening of the next day. And not a man of them escaped except for 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken and David rescued his two wives Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, This is David's spoil. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who were left behind at the brook Besor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, Because they didn't go with us, we'll not give them any of the spoil that we've recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, You shall not do so, my brothers. With what the Lord has given us, he has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, 
so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel, in Ramoth of the Negeb, in Jatir, in Aroir, in Sifmoth, in Esnatoah, in Rakal, in the cities of the uh, Jeremelites, in the cities of Kenites, in Hormah, in Borashan, in Athat, in Hebron, for all the places where David and his men had roamed. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. One day, out west, a cowboy was driving down a dirt road in his truck. His dog was riding in the back of the pickup truck. His faithful horse was in the trailer behind, and he took a curve too fast, had a terrible accident. Sometime later, a highway patrol officer came on the scene. He was an animal lover, and he saw the horse first, and he realized the serious nature of the horse's injury and how much pain he was in, and he drew his service revolver and put the animal out of its misery. Then he walked around the accident, and he found the dog also critically hurt, and he couldn't bear to see it whine in pain, so he ended the dog's suffering as well. And finally, he located the cowboy who had multiple fractures, and the cop asked, are you okay? And the cowboy took one look at the smoking revolver and said, never better. Undoubtedly, as much as David would have wanted to put on a happy face at this point, he couldn't say never better as he and his men headed back to Ziklag. For 16 months, he's had to keep up a charade for Achish. And then the anxiety of wondering when his schemes were going to catch up with him left him frequently wondering if life could get any worse for him and his 600 men. As we journey with them back to Ziklag, we realize the answer is yes, it can get much worse. The scene is a sobering picture as David and his men make the journey to Ziklag and they see smoke on the horizon. You can imagine some of the men immediately took off running trying to see what had happened to their wives, to their children, their, their camp. They don't know who's behind the attack, but the narrator tells us that the Amalekites had come and had raided the camp. And just as David had been doing to neighboring tribes. But they find that all their wives and children have been taken by the marauders, not to be killed, but probably to be sold into slavery. Now David can say, officially, things can't get any worse. As we look at this passage, we see that mighty David is not nearly as mighty as he thinks. The man who, for the last four chapters, has really sought to be his own savior, now needs saving. And as David comes to the end of himself, he remembers that Yahweh is the only one powerful enough to save. As we move through this passage, I want you to see four things. David's weakness, God's strength, God's victory, and David's transformation. So first, look with me at David's weakness. The exhausted David arrives at Ziklag to find camps been destroyed, his two wives have been taken captive, and he and his men begin weeping bitterly. And then to add insult to injury, 
the men need somebody to blame. And these men who had followed David because they wanted a better life, a life out from under Saul's thumb, and now they're discussing whether or not to stone David. And I think they would have, except David was really the only one that had the leadership skills. These were a bunch of misfits and outcasts. David was really the only one among them that had the skills to go back and get them their families back. And so they spared David. And we need to see that this whole event is not just a random situation. God is at work here. God has a reason for everything. Certainly, we would all agree with that, but one of the things we forget is that sometimes the reason for the bad things and the hard things that come into our lives are because we make really bad decisions. And that's the case of David here. That's why David's suffering. He, he's backslidden in his face, the faith, and the things that they're facing are due to David's disobedience and faithlessness. It's David that led this band into the land of the Philistines in the first place. But God is at work even through David's sin and in God's providence towards David. It's not about retribution. It's not about punishment. It's about discipline. And so through this whole event, God is preparing David because before David can be king, he has to learn that the only way forward for the king of Israel is to trust and obey God. He's fallen into the spiral Uh, since the beginning of chapter 27, the spiral of self-reliance. And it it goes like this. He sees something that concerns him. He fears. And then he starts plotting and scheming to fix it himself. And, And he looks to the might of his own hand to fix situation after situation. But what's happened as we've walked with him through this is again and again, it's getting worse and worse. The more he tries to fix it, the more problems he's created. There's something very telling about this season of David's life. Do you know the last time we're told that David prayed? It was back in chapter 23. The last time David even mentioned the name of Yahweh, of the Lord, was back in chapter 26. It doesn't mean that David absolutely didn't pray or never mentioned Yahweh's name, but the Holy Spirit is making a point to us that prayer and reliance upon God have not been part of David's life. He's again and again looking to his own creativity and his own ingenuity. You know, prayerlessness exists because of self-trust, self-reliance. When we think we can handle all the difficulties of life on our own, our prayer lives tend to dry up. But he's learning finally that he's not nearly as strong as he thinks he is. And we all know that. But David's the last one of the party. He needed to see his weakness so that he would then lean into Yahweh's strength. So this brings us to our second point. When David saw his weakness, he then appreciated God's strength. Look at the last part of verse 6. This is really a turning point in this season of David's life. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. This is the first drop 
of spiritual sensitivity that we've seen out of David in at least 16 months and probably longer. Now, what does it mean that he strengthened himself in the Lord? Well, let me tell you what it doesn't mean, and this is what sometimes we find ourselves guilty of. It doesn't mean he looked to the Lord for a quick fix to get him out of a bind. I I see that so often. People get themselves in trouble, and so they turn to God as if he's a genie in a Bible ready to fix all their problems. That's superstition. Not strengthening yourself in the Lord. What does it mean that David strengthened himself in the Lord? He shifted his focus off of his circumstances and onto the character and promises of Yahweh. That's what it means that he strengthened himself. You know, I suspect that even in these last few chapters when David hasn't prayed, when David hasn't talked, at least in the text, about Yahweh, surely he was still able to wax eloquent about religion. Surely lip service was paid to the God of Israel. But it wasn't a vital, personal faith. His faith had shriveled up, it seems. But now as David comes to the end of himself, he falls at the feet of God. Again, that language of verse 6, David strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. There's a big difference between just calling Yahweh Lord and my Lord. Your elementary school grammar teacher tried to tell you pronouns are important, and they are, especially when it comes to your walk with Christ, my Lord. The commentator Alexander McLaren said it beautifully, David could no longer say my house, my city, my family, or my possessions, but he could say my God. All the other stuff that had preoccupied David and all the other stuff that David had trusted in collapsed. And Yahweh was all he had left and David remembered that Yahweh was all he needed. Another commentator, Roger Ellsworth, sums up the meaning of to strengthen ourselves in the Lord. He says, to strengthen ourselves in God means we remind ourselves of what Scripture says about God and his promises, and we bring those truths to bear on our situation. Every trial, he says, causes opposing voices to ring in the ears of the child of God. One is the voice of our circumstances telling us that our situation is hopeless. The other is the voice of faith telling us that our God is sufficient for the trial. And so when it says David strengthened himself in the Lord, really what it means is he tapped in to the strength that only Yahweh has, that he had been depriving himself of by neglecting God in his daily life. Do you ever do that? Do you ever get totally wrapped around the axle about your problems and your problems get bigger and bigger and God seems less and less relevant as a solution? You don't denounce Yahweh. You just don't really think he can help in this situation. That's when you need to strengthen yourself in the Lord. I want you to look with me at an example of this. Psalm 56. This was another situation in the life of David where he's in a a bad spot. 
and he begins by talking about his circumstances, but then his focus shifts over to the power and the strength of his God. Psalm 56, verses 1 and 2. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. See, David here has come to the precipice of allowing his circumstances to overcome him with fear. What does he do? Look at verse 3. He strengthens himself. When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? You know, David, we saw this back in chapter 27. David bought the propaganda of his own fears. When we strengthen ourselves in the Lord, we preach the gospel to our own hearts. We remind ourselves of the truths of our God. He strengthened himself in the Lord. We see, by the way, that this is sincere. This is not just David trying to fix his problems. And we do see that a lot. People face hardship. They face trouble. And they say, well, maybe I'll start seeking God now. Maybe I'll be a better person now. But the problem is they never leave their old ways. And so they just bounce from one catastrophic situation to the next. But look what David does, showing that his repentance here is sincere. Verse 8. David inquired of the Lord. Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? Having renewed his faith in the Lord and received the strength that comes from God, he immediately consulted God's word for guidance. It's David's way of saying, you know, I don't need to take matters into my own hands. I can't fix it. I don't need to lean on my own understanding, but I need to lean on God because his promises cannot fail. And that's helpful because by this point, David doesn't know what to do. David knows what to do, that he's got to pursue that band. But he doesn't know how to go about it. He doesn't even know who he's looking for. We know it's the Amalekites. But even even knowing that, these were a nomadic people. There was no telling where to look for them. So David not only has to obey the Lord, but he has to trust that God's going to bless his obedience even when he doesn't understand how in the world this is going to work out. He doesn't understand where it's going to lead him. Look what Yahweh does. Verses 9 and 10. So David set out and the 600 men who were with him and they came to the brook Besor where those who were left behind stayed, but David pursued, he and 400 men. So not only does David not know where he's going, not only are his men exhausted, but one out of every three of his men decides they're going to drop out. And the rest were some difficult warriors, which we're going to see in just a little bit. So David has depleted forces, some of whom were just trying to stone him a matter of a few verses ago. But he had Yahweh's strength, and that's more than enough. Look at our third point, Yahweh's victory, God's victory here. I'm sure that some in David's band would have said, David, this is a waste of time. We don't know where to go. We don't know where to look for them. We don't know if our families are still alive, and the odds of us finding them alive are almost zero. But David would say, yes, but let us obey God. God will bless obedience. 
We always need to remember that obedience to God's commands, even when we don't understand all the details, is always the right choice. You are never led astray by obedience to God's commands. Obedience is always beneficial. And we see a glimpse into that here as God graciously blesses David's obedience. David goes seeking his people that have been taken, and he has no idea where to go and what happens. They come across this Egyptian who had been a servant of the Amalekites, but he got sick and was left behind because he would have slowed them down. And so they gave him food and drink, and they they began to, to ask what happened, and he tells them where their families have gone. And God would use this obsolete, seemingly obsolete Egyptian slave uh, to lead David to recover all his family and all his goods. One commentator said the same God who brought David low in order to restore his heart was fully capable of also restoring all that he had lost. And so David went, and he and his men had a decisive victory in which they got back everything that had been taken, both in terms of people and possessions, and the only explanation is that Yahweh led them to victory. This was God's victory. Now, not only did Yahweh conquer the Amalekites here, but he's also conquering David's heart. We see a clear transformation in this passage. That's the last thing I want you to see is David's transformation. David gets back his family possessions, and he gets the spoils of victory. And David starts to recover the spoil, uh, to redistribute the spoil that they recovered. And he gives some to those 200 men that they had left at the brook of Besor. Now, some of his warriors say, no way, they didn't earn it. We're not giving them anything. You can give them their families back and go tell them to deal with it. Look how David responds in verse 23. You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He's preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Do you see what David, who has so long trusted in the might of his own hand, in his own ability as a warrior, do you see what he's saying? We didn't earn this. This is the Lord's doing. So how can we be stingy with it? We didn't earn it. How can we be selfish with it? You know, in, in distributing the spoil to those 200 that didn't fight for it, David's not just being kind. It certainly was kind, but there's more to it. David is showing he's a man who's beginning to understand grace. See, it was his, it was his fault that all of these things were happening. And rather than pretending that he deserved credit for the victory, He gave Yahweh all the credit, and at this point, he is far more concerned with the glory of God than the spoils of war. It was graciously given to him, and he wants to graciously give it away. He knew it wasn't his plunder that he recovered, but gifts that Yahweh had graciously given. There's a direct relevance for you and me today, because you and me have something far better than the spoils of war. We have salvation in Jesus Christ, and we didn't earn it. It's a gift. It's all the Lord's doing. And when we understand that what we have in the gospel is all of grace, 
then it transforms us. You know, those other men in David's band that are complaining, they're self-righteous. Because they think, we earned this, we're entitled to it. And it leads to a proud and calloused attitude. But when we, like David, understand that everything we have is the gift from God, especially when it comes to our eternal salvation, it transforms us so that we, rather than boasting in what we have done, we are humbled by what God has done for us. That's the transformation that's happening in David here. The difference between a person who understands grace and a person who is self-reliant is the difference between worship and pride. The man who realizes that our lives are all of grace sees every gift as an opportunity to praise the giver and bless his neighbor. While the works righteous person, like some in David's band were, believe it's the fruit of their own labors. They've earned it. They don't need to share it. They don't need to give glory to God for it. And therefore, they can indulge themselves. Let me quote Dale Ralph Davis. He says, if we don't grasp grace, we plummet into idolatry because that's the inevitable corollary of self-sufficiency. Then we walk around talking about the plunder we have recovered and other ridiculous notions. When we're self-righteous, we think that everything is for us and everything is about us, and we indulge ourselves and we turn to idolatry. But when we understand that everything we have is a gift of grace, then we don't praise the gift. We praise the giver, and we share the gift with others. That's what we see in David. He's so amazed by the generosity and grace God has shown him that he shares generosity and grace towards others. What of us? We've received grace that far exceeds what David understood. We have salvation that was won for us by our great captain, the Lord Jesus. He's lavished grace upon us. How much more should that transform us? us and how we see the world. It's all a gift. Our salvation is all of grace. It's incredibly transformative when we understand it. A couple of quick applications. First, David reminds us of two concurrent gospel truths. The greatest of saints can fall and the worst of sinners can repent. We're going to see that again and again in David's life. He goes from a paragon of virtue to a filthy sinner, almost overnight at times. The greatest of men can fall. The worst of sinners can repent. This reminds us that the best of men are not beyond the reach, uh, the need of God's grace, and the worst of men are not beyond the reach of God's grace. Second, This isn't the last time David's going to fall victim to his own pride. I wish that we could say from here on out, it's smooth sailing, that David is steadfastly faithful till the day he dies, but you and I both know better that again and again, he's going to become careless and proud. David reminds us that we need to stand guard against 
the ways that pride charms us into self-reliance and we let down our guard while the evil one is prowling around. We must carefully watch our lives because Satan is always ready to attack. And so if King David could fall, you and I must also be on guard against Satan's temptations. Let's go to our God in prayer. Our God in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it speaks to to our lives so well. Even 3,000 years removed, it is so relevant to us. Lord, for any who perhaps are walking through a season like David was, where he was spiritually dry, where he was self-reliant, where he needed to see his own weakness, Father, I pray that you would bring them to that sense. Bring them to the end of themselves so that they may fall at your feet. Father, you have lavished more grace upon us even than David understood. And if that grace that he did understand transformed him, how much more ought your grace transform us? We pray this in Jesus' name.